Welcome to the Soul Surgery Podcast. And I am beyond excited to share with you the next episode where I get to sit with an incredibly wise and smart and deep and soulful and powerful human being. He has helped thousands and thousands of people all over the world and continues to help by sharing his wisdom and his teachings in public speaking and books and through his courses and just seems to be able to offer healing to everyone who comes in his path. And I was lucky enough to have been able to spend two weeks with him in the jungle in Peru last year on a really powerful alignment retreat. So in the next episode, I am sitting with the incredible Dr. Gabo Mate. Dr. Gabo Mate is a renowned speaker and best-selling author, and he is highly sought after for his expertise in topics including addiction, stress, and how stress creates illness and impacts our health, and also childhood development. And in this episode, we are speaking on a topic that is exceptionally dear to my heart from a personal standpoint, because I personally had to go through the journey that we speak about in this episode. So we are speaking about breaking free of addiction by healing childhood trauma. Gabor, his whole practice and work and discoveries, you know, very much shared from his book in the realm of hungry ghosts about addiction is that addiction is not this disease, this life sentence that, that we carry and can be unhealed and we carry it for the rest of our life. We're kind of stuck with it. This is it. I'm an addict and, and now I have to learn how to just be with it and, and kind of survive with this thing called addiction. And Gabor discovered in his, in his research that at the root of every single addict he'd ever met, there was childhood trauma and emotional pain. And so we dive deeply in this episode at what is the root of addiction and, and how addiction is not just, you know, the heroin addicts and the people who are, are, are drunks, and, but that it is rifled through our Western living today. And we speak about the path of healing and how we can heal. It is something that we can heal. So without further ado, I, I cannot wait for you to hear this. If, if you have any big insights or aha moments or shifts while you're listening to this episode, please do get in touch with me. Like, let me know where in the episode it impacted you and how it impacted you and how that's impacted your life, because I love to hear from you. And I just love to hear your healing. And of course, if this episode 
uh, resonates with you and and helps you in any way please do share it with others share it far and wide for anyone that you think it will help and if you love this podcast please subscribe and leave a review reviews matter because when you leave a review then we can spread the word and this podcast can spread to more and more people and help more and more people along the way so i'm very grateful to you if that is something that calls to you so enough of my talking let's go straight to the episode with garba mate Hi, Gabor. Welcome to the Soul Surgery Podcast. It's so good to see you. Good to see you, Nikki. It's been about over a year. Yeah, over a year. And I was just saying, I was just reflecting before I came on to meet with you today that the last time I saw you, we were sitting in a maloka in the Amazon, (laughs) um, having just finished a two-week alignment retreat. And yeah, I, I kind of feel like we were getting prepared <laughs> for mm. what was about to unfold yeah. in the world yeah it mm. felt like training almost but it's really really good to see you um how, how are you how have you i mean you're in the midst of a book so well i'm, I'm sort of the, the tail end of the book but um the book has gone on longer than i expected it to both in the sense of the time and also in terms of the length and yes. I have to really rein it in, bring it under control, finish it in the next few weeks. And so mm. I generate a lot of pressure on myself around that. But at the same time, you know, I'm confident that I've got some good material to work with and to and to shape into something worthwhile once I'm done with it. Yes. I, I also wrote a book during this time in the world. And my teacher said to me, you know, writing a book, I mean, you know this because you've written so many, but for me, he was like, writing a book is like mining for diamonds. (laughs) And Mm. I didn't realize that at the time. It just for so long, you're kind of just dusting earth and dusting earth and dusting Mm. earth. And then somehow something gets shaped and this diamond, well. Well, you know, (laughs) Michelangelo, the the artist, um, he apparently talked about sculpture is taking this huge piece of rock and just cutting away at it till the figure of David or whoever he was sculpting would emerge from it, you know, like it's it's in there, you just cut away all the rock. And that's what it it feels like a lot. Oh, and actually, that's so aligned with what we're going to be talking about today. You know, this, this beautiful piece of art that gets to emerge when we cut away all the rock and you know the topic of today is is healing from addiction mm. you know from through childhood trauma and you know i i i'm firstly i want to thank you for your research and your teachings on this topic um coming from a fellow addict still healing addict when i heard your teachings you know in the realm of hunger ghosts that you know, at the root of addiction was childhood trauma and that it can be healed rather than it was this disease that I had, that I was imprisoned by for the rest of my life that I just had to get used to. Uh, It, it, it changed everything. It changed the perception of everything. So 
you know, how did you come to your, how did you come to these learnings? How did you come to these insights about it being childhood trauma at the root of addiction? Well, really, uh, it's not a difficult uh, pathway because all you have to do is ask anybody whatever they're addicted to. So let's start with you. Okay. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to ask you, you can share if you want, but I'm not going to ask you to divulge what you're addicted to, but you've, you've just said that you've had some kind of addictive behavior, right? So the question then is not what's wrong with it, but what did it do for you? Like whatever it was, what, what, what did it give you in the short term? Well, actually, when I read that part of your book, when you said, I don't ever ask what anyone's addicted to or how long they've been addicted for, yeah. but I ask them, what did it give you? Yeah. What, what did, what did it, what did you get from it? And it moved me to tears. When I think about my constant chasing for the next high, when I think about the drugs that I took, the specific drugs that I took, okay. it was always connection. I wanted this heart connection. I wanted to feel like I belonged somewhere. Right. Okay, so wanting heart connection, is that a good thing or a bad thing? No, it's a wonderful thing. And actually, that's what I realized. It was like, mm -hmm. oh, you know, that's such a beautiful human need. That's exactly what it is. It's a need. So then the question is, what? given that we're born in the world with that need, and we have this what's called neural expectation, our nervous system expects that need to be met. Yes. Then what happened to you or to anybody that that need was frustrated so that now you have to seek it through this alternative behavior. So, so just by asking what the addiction does for somebody, whether it's sex or gambling or drugs or whatever it is, and then saying, well, what, okay, so you're looking for that quality of connection or, or communality or pain relief or, or excitement or joy in the world or playfulness mm -hmm. or control, mm -hmm. mastery, whatever you're looking for, how did you lose it? What happened? So something happened. So then trauma comes up right away. It's that simple. Yes. No, no. Having said all that, there's also all the research linking trauma to, you know, quite apart from my own insights, there's all this research linking trauma to uh, addictive behaviors in adulthood. And, and also we also have all the research about how the brain develops and how the circuits, like there's a certain circuit in the brain which has been called seeking, mm. which is the looking for something, the excitement. It's, it's it runs on dopamine. Well, what we know, just as there's a circuit for you know for love and connection, you know, which runs on opiates and and, and oxytocin, and so now we now know that that the brain circuits develop in interaction with the environment. So when somebody's lacking that particular that system is not activated so they have to go turn to an addiction but what happened to them what happened to their brain when they were growing up and again you come back to stress and trauma so all roots all roots whether you look through the brain physiology or the psychology of it or just the emotional needs they all go back to trauma well i mean when you speak a bit about it like that <sighs> I mean, it makes me think, firstly, I think most people, when they think of addiction, 
they'll think of the heroin addict or yeah. the guy who wakes up and drinks a bottle of whiskey. Um, certainly, even when I was an active addict, I, that's what I would tell myself. You know, oh, I'm not like that. Right. But, but actually, you know, addiction seem, is 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 everywhere. <laughs> it seems to be rife in society today. Can you give us a definition of what addiction is, so the listeners can understand? Sure. So, addiction in if any is manifested in any behavior mm -hmm. that a person finds temporary relief or pressure in. Uh, and therefore craves, but suffers negative consequences or incurs negative consequences to themselves or others in the long term. Mm -hmm. But they don't give it up. So pleasure, craving, relief in the short term, negative consequences in the long term, inability or refusal to give it up. Those are the hallmarks of addiction. And if you got any of those, if you got those three, you got an addiction. Yes. So it's not whether you drink mm -mm. it's what does it do for you in the short term and what's the long-term impact and do you and are you able to give it up if there's negative impact so if from that perspective it could be alcohol it could be all the drugs the opiates the stimulants and so on could be sex gambling shopping food work eating internet uh, cell phones relationships, um, mm -hmm. uh, digital media, uh, one could just go on television watching, e even things that are ostensibly good and can be good, can be addictive depending on your relationship to it. So it's not the external activity, it's the internal relationship. For example, exercise, but we all, ex we all agree that exercise is a good thing. Yeah. But if you're, but if you're using it to escape from your emotional pain, because you can't stand being with yourself or with your family, and you're overdoing it so that it takes time away from other activities or you're physically hurting yourself, and you can't give it up. Now you've got an addiction. Yeah. Even with the behavior, if I just saw you riding your bike, I say, what a great person. She's riding their bike and they're, they're getting good aerobic workout. Well, that's true. But what's going on on the inside? So it's the internal relationship. That's what defines the addiction. Yes. And when, when I when we hear about it like that, you know, it completely takes away or it invites the ability to take away this stigma, this 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 generalization, this picture of addiction as this dirty disease, as as yeah. as the bad guy out there, as yeah. the one on the street over there and actually starts to open up that it's more intimate. It's actually here in our life, like right now. You Actually, you speak about dehumanization, this judgment of behavior. You know, we live in a, in a way where we judge people by behaviors, but how often do we look yeah. and see the human being? Yeah. Part? Well, and I think part of that ostracization or stigmatization is precisely because we fail to look at ourselves or we don't want to. So it's very easy to project our loathing of some part of ourselves onto mm -hmm. somebody who exhibits it in a more egregious fashion. Mm -hmm. you know, so that, that, that the, the stereotypical image of the drug addict becomes a very convenient container for mm -hmm. stuff that we don't particularly like about ourselves. Mm 
Yes, it feels like that's happening a lot at the moment in our world today, don't you think? Well, it is, and 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 um, you know, it's interesting. Like the studies that um, show that when we look at people that we don't recognize as ourselves, mm-hmm. our sense of disgust becomes greater. Mm-hmm. The circuits, you know, the the circuits in the brain that that manifest disgust become activated. Where if we saw the same behavior in somebody that looks like us, we wouldn't get the same response. So yes. they, you know, these are deeply, deeply um, ingrained human dynamics, but it all comes down to um, whether we're looking at whether we're willing to look at ourselves honestly or not. Because if we are, when I worked with highly addicted clientele in Vancouver and British Columbia here. Honest to God, Nikki, in 12 years, I didn't meet anybody who, in whom I didn't recognize myself to one degree or another. Mm-hmm. Now, they manifested it to higher degrees. They suffered, they suffered more than I have, and they're not as class privileged or, or, or racially privileged sometimes as I am. Mm-hmm. But the dynamics, mm-hmm. you know... Uh, Repeated behaviors that don't do you any good, refusal to look at reality, mm-hmm. lying, um, lying to yourself and to others. Oh, mm-hmm. there's nothing about them that I didn't exhibit to a high degree. And then the question becomes, who's more culpable? Me, this privileged middle-class person with good income and all kinds of support, or these isolated people, highly traumatized, who have been just um ground down since early childhood who's more, who's more culpable but who does society exact the highest price from from them yes you know so that's just how it works so you know there's compassion which i know is an absolute the heart of your work the ability to have compassion and bring compassion to to addiction and and really it's bringing compassion to the trauma and it feels like that actually compassion like the painting or the the art it emerges the more that we can heal in ourselves it becomes more available well that's exactly right and, and that's what i find is that when people heal they are, are, in fact, you know what, the common experience I used to have when I was working with this highly addicted population is people would say to me, Doc, if I ever get through this, I'm going to spend the rest of life, my life making sure that other people don't have to suffer like the way I suffered. Mm. So that's that, one of the reasons why I got into the work I do too. It's, yeah? it's just like... <sighs> to be able to help those who have suffered the way we, I've suffered. Yeah. So can you give us, can you give us an explanation or teaching of what trauma is? Yeah, so again, <clears throat> some people think of trauma as um, really awful things happening. Mm-hmm. Beatings, violence in a family, 
parents highly addicted, um, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, severe neglect. Mm -hmm. And yes, those events are traumatic, but that's not how I define trauma itself. Um, trauma, if you look at the word origin, comes from a Greek word meaning wound. Mm. Trauma is a wounding. So when you metaphorically, when you think of a wound or even practically, what can happen to a wound? Um, it can stay open. Mm -hmm. And then every time you touch it, it just really hurts. Mm -hmm. So a lot of his, so these trigger points that we all have, you know, when you get triggered, what's happening is some wound is being touched mm. where it's very sensitive. So that's one thing that can happen. The other thing that can ha happen in, in, in wounding is that you can develop a scar over it, scar tissue. Mm -hmm. Now, what's the nature of scar tissue? It's thick. It's hard. It doesn't have nerve endings in it, so it doesn't feel. Mm -hmm. And it's not flexible. Mm -hmm. So then we can... In, so in trauma, then, to go with the, the analogy of these two responses to wounding we can be very sensitive and hyper reactive over some things or at the same time we can develop a kind of hardness a lack of flexibility um an impenetrability where we no longer feel what's going on so both of these things are, re are, are responses to wounding mm. and so trauma to me is not what happens to you but what happens inside you is a result of what happens to you. Mm -hmm. So the, the primary thing that happens when a child is wounded continually is um, it's all adaptive. So you disconnect from yourself. Mm -hmm. That disconnection is adaptive. It, 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 it allows you from feeling pain. It also gets you into trouble later on because now you no longer know who you are, what you feel, and so on. But, but that disconnect is, is adaptive. <clears throat> um, so there's a disconnection from yourself. Um, you develop a worldview that is informed by trauma. So when a child is being wounded, what, what, what assumption can they make about the world? That it's a hostile, fearful place to be. So yes. some people who are traumatized, that's how they grow up. Then they get to be president of the United States you know, b b believing that the world is a hostile, horrible place, which is exactly what he said. He said the world oh. is a horrible place, he said, um, where you can't trust your friends. Everybody's after your goods and your wife and, you know, even your friends, never mind your enemies, he said. This, this guy runs mm -hmm. the strongest country, the biggest country in the world, not the biggest, mm -hmm. the most powerful country in the world. Mm -hmm. And we know now how traumatized he was as a child, you know, based mm -hmm. on recent, I mean, I've always known it, but there's recent revelations that have made it really clear. So you, do, so you disconnect from yourself, you develop a negative worldview, um, you, your relationship to other people is, is deranged because either you shut down your gut feelings, in which case you might end up in relationships that are really hurtful and there's nothing to warn you, or you become so scared of relationships that you don't open yourself up to intimacy at all. Mm -hmm. Either way, you, you suffer. Um, mm -hmm. And trauma, 
Of course, there's also the impact on the brain that I've already talked about. Brain development is distorted. Um, what else with trauma? Well, those are the major features, I would say. So trauma is, <clears throat> is not what happens to you, but all these responses inside you to what happens to you. They become entrenched, they become chronic, they become um, the governing dynamics of your personality. Yes. And then when I hear you say that, it becomes so clear, you know, we add in human need and human nature, and and then it, it kind of becomes clear why we seek addiction, why we seek things. Mm-hmm. We, we start seeking, seeking, seeking. What can I find that will protect me or mask something or defend something or or fill something and it just feels like this and what's an endless right search Uh, but really when i you know at the the heart of it when you say it's a disconnection from self it's like we're looking for connection deep connection yeah and a disconnection from self It's no small thing because it has all kinds of consequences, um, physiologically and, 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 and emotionally. And, you know, when you think about it, we couldn't have survived if we weren't connected to ourselves. In other words, human beings as a species, like imagine an animal in the wild who's disconnected from their own feelings. How long do they survive? They wouldn't make a moment. They wouldn't, they wouldn't, yeah. They wouldn't. Well, the same with the human species. Mm-hmm. So that, that disconnection is an artifact of, civilize, of what we call civilization. Mm-hmm. But for most of our existence, we lived out there in the wild, really connected, actually. And so that this disconnect is, although it's right throughout human history, uh, mm-hmm. from the point of view of human existence, it's a very recent thing. And we live in a society that magnifies it to the nth degree. Mm-hmm. So it's not just yes. the individual trauma, it's also that we live in a society that um, actually economically depends on this connection to sell us all these things we don't need. Yep. If we're actually connected, who would need all the latest gadgets? Mm-hmm. You know. Yep. <laughs> It's like we're being sellers, you know, I feel like this is the biggest, well, not the biggest, but it's a big thing that's being highlighted and almost purged through at the moment. Uh, Certainly, it's what I'm, a big part of what I've been seeing and experiencing this year is just the absolute depth of disconnection that we are, that we as a species are, are living in. And, and you know i've recently been looking at social media addiction and and really looking at the impact it is having and it has had on me and 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 the depth of it and it's like it's it's celebrating disconnection and emptiness mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as something that we that we want it's like a seduct it's seductive yeah because it's social media but it actually makes us more asocial and uh, Facebook, you know, and it's a, meant to bring us together. Well, now look, see, the technology itself is neutral. I mean, isn't it wonderful that we have Zoom? We could have this conversation and gaze at each other across the uh, co- continents and the oceans, you know? Yep. 
But again, in this society, because there's so much pain and disconnection, everything gets bent into the service of compensating for what we've lost. Mm. And this is how things get addictive, addictive, I should say. Yes. So you were born into a Jewish family in Budapest mm -hmm. during the Holocaust. Yeah. I, I mean, how did that impact your life? Oh, not at all. I just threw it up. Oh, oh God. <laughs> I mean, I, I said to myself, a little genocide, so what? You know? Um, look. Um, I mean, the levels of healing that has needed to happen, I can imagine. It just. Yeah, so levels of healing that still need to happen on some level, you know? Um, that, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, I have to say something here, which may seem sound strange, but first of all, it, it's not, it doesn't do to compare anybody's suffering to anybody else's. Mm -hmm. Secondly, yes, I had a really difficult first year, very difficult, it doesn't sum it up, a horrid first year of life, you know, my mother, the city being bombed, the Germans deporting Jews to Auschwitz, including my grandparents, separation from my mother, hunger, illness, and all that. This is the first year and a year and a month of my life. Mm -hmm. Huge impact. Mm. On the one hand, on the other hand, most of the dynamics that traumatized me were imposed externally on my family. And fundamentally, I grew up in a functional family. My parents, my, my parents were far, far from perfect. And emotionally, they were just not all that astute. And there's lots of stuff I could say about what I didn't get. Mm. Having said that, uh, the people I worked with in the downtown east side, they were actually hurt inside their families. Um, no, there's all kinds of historical reasons for that, but the, the, but the pain was chronic. It didn't wasn't restricted to a certain temporal period because of some external uh, catastrophe like the war and the genocide, but that they lived in families that themselves were so traumatized that they kept traumatizing and re-traumatizing uh, their children, and so that. There was no escape, you know, like in my family, there was a fairly decent holding of us. Not they, My parents didn't know how to hold me emotionally all that well, but we knew we were loved and, 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 and they really would have done anything for us. And, and, and you know, there was <clears throat> stability. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't have that. So even though externally, my initial circumstances were... Um, unspeakably terrible mm. through the trajectory of my development I did have a holding space you know mm. where I was loved and respected you know mm. a lot of people don't have that benefit can't just look at somebody's external circumstances you actually look at what's happening inside the family that's what matters yes you know when I think back to my the beginning days of my addiction yeah and you know the big at the beginning it really is just like basic like don't drink 
don't take drugs, uh, you know, uh, try <laughs> look at behavior. But af after many years, I, I'd, I'd been in recovery for nine years and I, I yeah. had been sober and clean from drugs for nine years. And I, I, was, I would sit there and, you know, I would hear things like, you know, once an addict, always an addict. Yeah. And I and something in my I don't know whether it was my soul or my heart or something just was like this doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel right. And it and it I actually had an amazing therapist at the time who encouraged me to question hmm. the system that I had been in and the the conditioning that I was in and and because of that, I started to dig deeper and deeper. And I could see, you know, I, you know, even to the tiniest, not tiniest things, I, I had this caffeine addiction. And I started to realize that even the way that I had my coffee, it was so milky and sweet. It was like my mother's breast, like I wasn't breastfed, like it literally, and I couldn't give it up. It didn't matter how, how good I was being or how much I was meditating. It, there was something about this way that I drank it that just huh. gave me something. And I, was there, but, but Nikki, was there something wrong with it? Did it cause you harm? Sorry? Did it cause you No, harm? no, but that was the, that was the moment when I realized this, this isn't, this isn't an illness yeah. like this is so, like I could actually feel the mother's milk yeah. from it that I was having in it. And, oh. and so I guess what I want people listening, you know, to this episode, like how, firstly, how can they begin healing? How can they begin the healing of this well, see, in, in, Inside the world of um, the usual addiction recovery programs, the medical model and the 12 step methods, and I have a lot of good things to say about the 12 steps, but yes. I think they missed something. Mm -hmm. inside, the, inside the ideology that this is a, a, a disease that you inherited and you're going to have it for the rest of your life, it makes sense. Once an addict, always an addict. Mm -hmm. Inside the trauma model, it doesn't make any sense anymore. Once you understand that addiction is a response to trauma, why should you remain an addict if you heal the trauma? Yes. So in programs whose only purpose is or whose main purpose is to stop you using or engaging in a certain behavior, but nothing happens to transform the person. Mm -hmm. It's certainly true that there's always this risk of relapse because because you haven't healed the underlying wound. And so in that world, it makes sense. Once an addict, always an addict. But that's that's only because they don't get that underneath the addiction there's something deeper. Yes. And if you heal that, well, why should you remain an addict? Now, you know, it's certainly true that these habits are deeply ingrained in us and they have to do with brain circuits programmed in childhood. So if anybody's any doubt, don't play with it. You know, like if, if, you, if, if, you, if you've been an alcoholic and you, you think it may have healed, but you might not want to try it mm -hmm. just to find out, you know, mm -hmm. 
But in theory, and I know a lot of people who have, who, you know, who can, they can never drink. That doesn't mm-hmm. send them into a spiral. Mm-hmm. But most of the point is that that it, it always look at it always depends on what lens you're looking through. Mm-hmm. If you're looking through the lens of chronic disease, then what happens to chronic diseases? You you get better and then you relapse. You get remission and relapse. Mm-hmm. By the way, I have a lot to say about chronic disease as well, and and I see most of them as trauma based as well. And and I know you do. and it's not necess- and it's not even necessary that even in physical illnesses, many of them that you have to have these chronic relapses, you know. But that's a whole other discussion. When it comes to addiction, though, which is so clearly a trauma response, well, if you heal the trauma, um, you, why would you even want to have a drink? Yes. Like if you actually come. Uh, present in your body and comfortable with it and it at ease mm-hmm. and in touch with some joy of life why you know okay so you'd like the glass of wine well maybe but you don't need it you know yeah. so no it's not true that once an addict always an addict although it is true inside the treatment model that's usually employed yes and so are you saying that addiction can be healed by healing childhood trauma? Well, um, trauma can be healed. Yes. And addiction uh, is a symptom. Addiction is a symptom. So, you yes. know, um, addiction is a symptom. It's, 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 it's a sign of something, you know, mm-hmm. that of, of, of an unmet internal need and, and an unfulfilled internal development. Mm-hmm. That's what addiction is. So that need is met if that development takes place. There's no addiction. Yes. You know, I I really can vouch for this. I I I don't I can have a drink every now and then, but I don't yeah. really think about it anymore. Yeah. And it's really not an issue in my life and and I don't the uh, the thought of putting drugs in my body is just not something I would ever want to do again. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. It feels so destructive, and and so I really can vouch for that. And actually, even after coming back from the jungle, when we did that that retreat, you know, I had such a core point of trauma healed in that jungle, like when I was in mm-hmm. the womb mm-hmm. moment in time. And since coming back to that, I really started to look at my work addiction. And mm. this kind of striving and, and achieving and pushing addiction. And, and even now that's become very, that almost feels violent in my life when I go mm. there. And mm. it can still be a pull. <laughs> yeah, of course. of course. But I'm really seeing, you know, the more that we heal and more we come home or more we come back to this wholeness or, or we heal the disconnection, these desires or these the need to do it does seem to dissolve i must say that the, the, one of the problems is systemic in that the average addiction counselor the average physician the average psychiatrist never gets this perspective it's not part yes. of their training uh they're trained in a very narrow kind of way and and uh, so that I mean, you've had the good fortune to have these insights, but also have some support in um, 
deepening these insights and applying them to yourself. Yes. A lot of people might have a similar insight, but nothing in their environment will support them. Yes. Because they'll go to their meetings where they're told you got this chronic disease or they'll go to a physician or you got this chronic disease and let's manage it. You know, mm -hmm. so, so much depends on people actually trusting their own process and then finding the support for it. Um, no, you know, there's, again, um, I think the 12 steps, have you done the 12 steps? I did, yes. I was in 12 step for nearly 10 years. And you'll probably agree with me that the steps in themselves are wonderful. Deeply powerful spiritual process. I, I did it three yeah. times and very, yeah. very healing. Um, for anybody, addictions yeah. or not, I would say. You know. For any human being. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for any human being. Well, I, I'm not in any way here to de devalue their benefits, but I wish they'd get straight on this trauma business. Yes. Which, which is largely missing. Uh, you know, I know it comes into it here or there, but it it's not, it should be a front and center. Yes. So I'm going to finish with one, and it's kind of a big question. You know, when we look at where we are today in the world, mm -hmm. uh, the leaders seem to be deeply traumatic. Um, mm -hmm. And then the system that is then <laughs> um, created for us to be functioning in um, is feeding, coming from a place of trauma and feeding disconnection. And now we are really being faced with the insanity and, I, and I'm seeing, certainly in the work that I'm doing with clients, I'm seeing people waking up, or, or even you said trust, having these moments of, of something in them going, hold on, something's not right. <laughs> something's not right about the way I've been living and, and starting to listen to that. And so, you know, when you look at where we are today, firstly, do you see a solution? I know it's a big one. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's just such a complex question. First of all, I, funny you should begin your statement with traumatized leaders because I'm just writing a chapter on, on traumatized leaders. And um, do you mind if I jump up for a minute? I'll, I'll be right back. Is that okay? Please. Yeah, no, go, go, go. Oh. <laughs> Only because this is the... Uh, this is the chapter I'm working on right now. So the name of your new book, are we allowed to say it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's called The Myth of Normal Illness and Health and an Insane Culture. And it'll be published in a year, also including in the UK. Uh, but anyway, in terms of traumatized leaders, this is, um, this is, let me just quote from this but I've just written, okay? Sure. Lucky us. There's no understanding of macro-level social dynamics without appreciating the intersectionality of the personal and the political. Each mingles with and informs the other. Here, too, trauma is a major influence, um, although one almost commonly overlooked in common discourse. Although no systemic issue can be reduced to the subjectivity and personal history of individuals, a powerful motive 
force impelling the collective dysfunction is the psychic woundedness of politicians interacting with populations unaware of the trauma in their leaders as in themselves. And then I quote this British psychotherapist, Sue Gerhardt, um, who says, we rarely address the underlying psychological and emotional dynamics of our public figures or our culture as a whole, writes the British psychotherapist, Sue Gerhardt. Public commentary is usually restricted to economical political analysis together with a sprinkle of gossip. And then I say, yet, and yet what leaders believe about the world and about their position in it, as well as the unconscious impulses that drive their actions are deeply influenced by their formative experiences. How are public figures behave in positions of leadership, as well as the politics they espouse are influenced by the moral framework they themselves acquired in infancy, says Sue Gerhardt. So whoever looks at the trauma of politicians, when, it, when, it, when, a, when, a, when a Margaret Thatcher says there's no such thing as society, which is what she said, what is she saying? She's saying, I'm completely alone. There's nobody there for me. She's giving me her life history. You know, when when a Donald Trump uh, uh, says that the world is a horrible place, as I cited before, he's saying, no, they don't know this is what they're saying. So they act out their politics, they act out their trauma in the public sphere at the expense of the public. But what they're saying is what a terrible life I've had as a child. And when you actually look, look at these people, they usually deny Childhood. They all had wonderful childhoods. You know? Yes. Uh, so they say. Uh, and you know, I, I also know Putin was also really badly bullied, really really bad, badly bullied as a little boy. Right. And you know, he's created a, a world where he'll never be bullied again. Right. Um, you know, and 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 then we as the public are we act like they're the mummies and daddies and they what they say is real and true and yeah and then we follow yeah yeah me do that because um we're looking for these we never had the parental figures we wanted so we look we projected onto that we want strong leaders who's going to we're going to protect us you know and so it's a combination of individual trauma and then the trauma of the leaders all interacting with the system Mm-hmm. that feeds all this so so when you say what's the solution um well like on the one hand there's no solution outside of a systemic resolution and nobody can dictate or prescribe that mm-hmm. i mean history just happens and and you know at some point we can hope that humanity will wake up that this is just isn't working anymore mm-hmm. Until then, I think the the resolutions are on the individual level and on the group level, on a mm-hmm. communal level. And when it comes to politics, on the level of people coming together to try to affect change. So mm-hmm. I can't say that the solution is on one level only. But of course, what we've got is ourselves. And, and it, it, it's got to at least begin there. And it has to, and you know, and, from that point of view, I do have faith in humanity. I mean, I think inside everybody, including even a Trump or a Putin or a Boris Johnson, there there is 
possibilities of transformation. It may not happen, mm-hmm. but the possibility is always there. And, uh, and of course, neither you or I would do the work that I do if we didn't believe in human possibility, would we? No, no. And And every day that I get to witness a human being just wake up a little bit more from the lens of trauma that they have been looking from and yeah. start to heal it 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 reminds me every day of that possibility and so yeah. what i hear in what you're saying is and i believe this too you know this a solution right now is absolutely let it begin with let it begin with each one of us yeah there's a certain invitation now more than ever for self-responsibility and healing yes and let's all of us to the extent that we have a voice and a platform speak about the truth that we see yes oh gabo it's wonderful to see you again um you know you brought me out to the jungle last year and i want to thank you for that it was that's not how it worked out. I know that's not how it worked out. How it worked out is that you brought me out to the jungle because I, I, I needed the healing, you know? But anyway, well, let, let's say we brought each other to the jungle, okay? We brought each other to the jungle and or maybe the jungle brought us. Mm. Maybe the jungle brought us there. And, mm. you know, it was, it was the beginning of a profoundly healing phase of life for me and I'm still in that and I just I the power of healing is beyond what we can imagine just when we think we've healed and and we if we're lucky enough to get a little bit more it's like it's it's like coming home it's such a gift so thank you to the jungle for bringing us both it's so wonderful to see you and I can't wait to read this book coming out well, can you, you give can, us the name again? It, it'll, it'll, it'll be called the myth of Nor- it's called the myth of normal illness and health and an insane culture. And believe me, the impatience with which you awaited is nothing like the impatience with which I wait getting it done. <laughs> I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. It's like pulling your hair out, labor of. I didn't get that. Could you try again? Oh, sorry, that was my computer telling me something. It's no problem. Uh, thank you, computer. Nice to have a friend, you know? Is that your imaginary friend? <laughs> yeah, well, she talks to me, doesn't she? <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much, Gabo, for coming on to Soul Surgery. It's wonderful to see you again, and I cannot wait to read this book. The title the subject the everything is what is needed right now the myth of normal what's the second part the myth of normal illness and health in an insane culture illness and health in an insane culture thank you so much for sharing your time with us thank you nikki